You're listening to Book Stories, a podcast about bookstores, the books inside them, and book culture. I'm your host, Vic Singh. Please subscribe to Book Stories on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen. And thanks for helping us spread the word. Coming up, we've got some great new conversations with writers, publishers, and more. Also, if there's a store out there you'd like to hear from or have featured, please reach out. Our Instagram handle is at bookstoriespodcast, and I'd love to hear from you. Coming up is my conversation with Richard Wolf, author of In Tune, Music as the Bridge to Mindfulness. Richard teaches at USC and produces mainstream music. He's worked with many well-known acts over his career, and we touch on many of those stops in addition to breaking down his new book about the relationship between mindfulness and music. We talk equally as long off mic as we did on, and that could and should have been a separate podcast by itself. Special thanks to Richard for coming through the studio. Here's our chat. Please enjoy and share with a friend. Thanks for listening. I'm Richard Wolf, author of In Tune, Music is the Bridge to Mindfulness. You're listening to Book Stories. Richard Wolf, thank you for being here. Thank you for asking me to be here. I really appreciate it. Appreciate the fact that you read the book, too. I'm looking forward to discussing it with you. The book is, of course, In Tune, Music as the Bridge to Mindfulness. How did you get into meditation? And what came first for you, music or meditation? Oh, music came first. Okay. That's that's a, that's an easy question because I started to hear music in my head that was internal, creating music ever since I can remember. I mean, at least since I was five years old, I wrote my first song, which was about death. Um, so music definitely came first. Uh, and how did you get into meditation? What was the trigger for you? Was it a book? Was it a song? Was it a conversation? Well, I had a couple of introductions to meditation. At first, when I was in high school, I was fascinated by Zen. And there were these books coming out at that time by D.T. Suzuki uh, about Zen and Alan Watts and Philip Kaplow. And we was reading these books. And it happened that there was a Zendo around the corner from where I was living. And so I started to meditate there. I learned how to meditate from a, a Zen master from Japan. It was very strict was yelling at me a lot um yeah so that's when i first started but it's been going through a lot of different evolutions yelling at you to do what uh he didn't like the way i put my pillow down for example uh or picked it up and things like that okay i wasn't very very neat i guess (laughs) what can meditation do for people and musicians or people that do tasks that require rigorous practice, what can meditation do for them? Meditation can do a lot. Um, There's so much benefit in the practice. So for musicians particularly, it's mainly about, it, it does rely on concentration. When you're a musician, you have to cultivate your concentration, right? Because you're focused on what you're playing. Let's say if you're a guitar player, you mentioned you're a, a percussionist. You're focusing on your body, your hands, the sound, the tempo, whatever it might be, but your moment to moment, it's in one direction. Your attention is all focused in one direction. So the foundation of meditation is concentration, same foundation they share. So yeah, meditation can improve your concentration as a musician. 
But the most important thing about meditation is it, it improves your life as a musician because when the music stops, you have to face the challenges of life. And that's where meditation helps. It helps put things in perspective. Um, I mean, we could go on forever on right. all the benefits in terms of calmness and clarity and compassion. Distinguish mindfulness from meditation. It's the, two, good, the, yeah. the words get tossed around a yeah. lot. I just had a conversation with one of my producers out there about it. Um, people say it, especially in LA, everybody's into mindfulness. Distinguish the two. My understanding is this. Meditation is basically two practices. One, as I said before, is concentration. Mm -hmm. That's the foundation. Being able to direct your attention undistracted, unfragmented, in one direction. So you're tuning into one thing or one point. And when you're tuning into one point, you're tuning out all the turbulence and the distractions and the noise and the cacophony that's going on either in your head or outside. So mindfulness is the second step. Mindfulness is maintaining that attentiveness that you have focused on the one point in concentration to all points in mindfulness. That means you open up your field of awareness to whatever is happening that comes across your field of consciousness. So in mindfulness, you become a spectator to the theater of your experience. And you're able to see everything that's happening without judging it, without getting entangled in it, without letting it own you. So that, those are the two aspects of meditation. And, and, in, and in, some, just to finish, in some traditions, they don't get into the mindfulness part of it. Um, they just stay with the concentration. When did mindfulness become the vanguard? Well, actually, I mean, the Buddha talked about mindfulness as one of the eightfold paths. Okay, okay. The concentration and mindfulness are two parts of the eightfold path. So mindfulness has been around... Since the beginning. Since, you know, for, and probably before the Buddha, too. I right. Mean, he made it systematic. But where when it, when it became more prominent in the United States, it started, I think, with... Uh, yeah, I'm not an expert on this. Um, John Kabat-Zinn. I, 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 oh, yeah, I, Wherever You Go, There You Are? That's that book? right. I would, I would credit two people, really, in terms of my experience and what I know about it. And they're more than these two. Um, but the two main ones would be John Kabat-Zinn with that book and other books that he's written. Who he kind of secularized uh, mindfulness, which, by the way, I just lately heard he kind of regrets because he thinks it's sacred and not just secular. And the other one would be Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, the Zen master from Vietnam, who's written a hundred books and uh, a lot of uh, teachings on mindfulness. I think he is a big factor in bringing the awareness of mindfulness to the West. You mentioned a moment ago about concentrating on one thing. Um, uh, you said one thing, but I'm going to extend that statement to mean, and we're talking about breath, right? Breath is talked about a lot in your book. Breath is kind of like the atomic unit of currency when you're talking about meditation. Why is that? And is that the only thing that you can should be concentrating on Well, I when think, meditating? Right. So I think there are a few reasons for it. One is it's always going on. It, it's as long as you're alive. Uh, you're going to be breathing. So it's an easy way to, to, well, it's not easy, but theoretically it's easier than other uh, objects of focus. Uh, 
And it's the seat of your life. Mm. You know, it's the essential part of, of your living is your breath. So that's another factor. And also the breath is different than other bodily functions in that it's both voluntary and involuntary. You know, usually it's involuntary. You're not f- conscious of how you're breathing. Right. But you can become conscious of it and you can have an effect on it by being conscious of it, by being aware of it. And they say there's a famous old saying that uh, he who controls his breath controls his mind. So there's that too. Yeah. Who said that? Oh, it's an ancient Chinese saying. Okay. How'd you come up with what you refer to as the 12 bridges between music and mindfulness? So I had given up on meditation, by the way. I started, as I said, when I was in high school, but it was very difficult for me because... Where'd you grow up, by the way? In New York, in Manhattan. In Manhattan. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it, it was very difficult for me because in those days you weren't allowed to sit on a chair. You know, you had to sit on the floor in one of two positions, both of which were very painful. And uh, I couldn't, I had a hard time managing that. Most of the time, my focus was on the pain in my legs. Um, but I persisted because I wanted to reach enlightenment. You know, all these authors had talked about Kensho, Satori, you know, that was uh, fascinating to me. But I didn't reach enlightenment in high school, and I continued as a freshman in college. And I had some good days, but uh, I never was able to transcend, so I gave up on it. But uh, I had a, an episode, of a scary episode of severe panic attack. And after that, the, my therapist prescribed for me 10 minutes of meditation in the morning and 10 minutes of meditation at night. And so I was very highly motivated at that point, thinking, you know, my whole life I've done this tango with meditation. I haven't been able to do it, but now I better figure out how to do it because I don't want to have another one of those panic attacks. Mm-hmm. So I started to read again extensively, and I found a book called Training Your Mind as an Ally by a Tibetan meditation master who's also a wild animal trainer. And he said that training the wild mind is like training a wild animal. And I focused in on the idea of training because I was not gifted with any discernible talent as a piano player, but because I trained myself, I practiced, I was able to play what I needed to play on records or performances. Mm-hmm. So I figured, well, if patience and perseverance in practice worked in music, why would it not work in this other area of meditation? And when I made that connection, the confidence that it gave me to continue made a huge difference, and it started to work. And then I saw all these other correspondences between music and meditation and mindfulness. They just started one after the other to come up. And it answered a lot of questions I always had. Why was Paul McCartney? Why was Leonard Cohen? Why was Carlos Santana? Why were all these musicians, Philip Glass? Why were they always talking about this meditation? What is it that attracts musicians? And it became obvious to me now what all the harmonies are between the two practices. You actually picked up perfectly, you segue to my next question, which is there's a litany of musicians mentioned in the book, and you just named a bunch yourself, but people like Leonard Cohen all the way to Kendrick Lamar more currently, who practiced meditation in some form or other. What do you see as a common thread between all the greats you mentioned that led them to mindfulness? Music is an altered state of consciousness. It's a high. And uh, very different from your everyday experience. And I think 
the artistic part of musicians are looking for that different state of consciousness that they're used to in music. And so for a musician to transfer from the altered state, which is nonverbal, highly intuitive, transpersonal, focused state of mind, where your mind and body are in harmony, in tune with the present moment, which is what you experience when you're making music, you can have the same experience when you're meditating. Exact same. It's nonverbal. It's highly intuitive. It's transpersonal. You transcend yourself. It's dependent on focus. And your mind and your body, because you are in, connect- in connection with your body, like you mentioned, you're focusing on your breath. You're also aware of what other bodily sensations might be going on at that time. Mm-hmm. And you're in the present moment. So it's a very similar state of altered consciousness or well-being that you have when you're making music, the same high is different. There are differences and important differences, but there's enough similarity to have a level of comfort in the state of meditation. At one point, you describe tuning your body like one tunes a drum. And I really like that because, as I mentioned to you, I was a percussionist. Can you describe that process and how it works in the context of mindfulness, tuning your body? Yeah, it's um, when you're sitting down in formal meditation, you can start from the top of your head and you just become aware of different areas of your body. And, you know, people call it body scanning. I mean, this is pretty, um, you know, my terminology is connected to music because that's the context with which I'm writing. but. Um, you go through different areas of your body and you just make sure that there's no tension there. And you kind of relax the tension when you come across it. So you go through from, you know, the top of your head to the soles of your feet. And wherever you feel stress, you try to de-stress it. So now you're... By thinking mm-hmm. about it? By being aware of it. Okay. So you're just aware of the, the part of your body and you just, okay, I'm going to relax it now. And it does work. It yeah. does help. Yeah. And, and by the way, it helps the whole uh, direction of your attention towards your body. So then you add the breath to it. And all the while you are conceivably letting the worldly things pass you by because you're focusing in more and more atomically on yourself, ultimately the breath. Right. And that's the, right. That's the, the, right. the objective. Yeah, it's drawing you in by focusing on different areas of the body, step by step, moment to moment, like the note, note by note in a song. Yeah. So it's drawing you in, to tuning in to one direction, to getting into that absorption of concentration. And can you do this moving around? I'm asking sort of from an outsider who's curious about this. I'm going to have, have a question for you to kind of give somebody who's never done this before but is curious kind of like a a primer if you will later on down the road but like does mindfulness and meditation you describe posture you describe uh seating and 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 you mentioned pillows can you do this while moving yeah that's a very good and controversial question okay because there are people that you know, will insist that they cannot sit still there's no way they're going to sit still and then those people are advised to practice either walking meditation or having um, 
what we call meditation in action. So if they're washing the dishes, just focusing on washing the dishes and trying to concentrate on that. Um, you know, in my opinion, meditation offers a whole spectrum of benefits from just de-stressing, handling your anxiety better to all the way to full awakening. And to enjoy the entire spectrum, it really is necessary to have the stillness of sitting formal meditation because so much about awakening has to do with touching that profound stillness and silence which undergirds everything that exists. And you can't get that if you're moving around. True. Uh, it makes total sense. You can't really practice an instrument walking around. It's the same right. idea, right? <laughs> it's a good... I, can't, I can't play the drums <laughs> right. while I'm moving. Right. So um, You can play in a marching band when you're moving. That's true. But you can't practice. You can't, you can't practice. be. You're not going to create. Yeah. Very, uh, it's, it's not a standard way of creating something. You had lunch with Miles Davis once. Mm -hmm. And he told you about the importance of silence. Yep. Can you tell that story? Yeah, I was in New York. It was 1985. And Miles had um, moved to Warner Brothers Records from Columbia Records. And I was friendly with his producer, Tommy LaPuma, who was also a Zanar man at Warner Brothers Records. And I was with Tommy in his apartment on Fifth Avenue. And he gets a call. And it's Miles. And, uh, and he, he hangs up the phone. And he says to me, you want to come with me and have lunch with Miles? And I'm, you know, of course I want to come, you know, how amazing is that? And what were you doing at the time, uh, career-wise? I was a, that's a good question. I was a staff writer for okay. Warner Brothers. Okay. A songwriter. Okay. And um, I guess I was introduced to, to Tommy through a mutual friend, Linda Perry, who was my publisher at Warner Brothers. And uh, we, we were friendly. Anyway, so it's in the summertime. Very hot, and we walk into this restaurant, a fine restaurant, and uh, the only person in the restaurant is this very regal-looking man wrapped in a beautiful, heavy fur coat, and it was Miles sitting at the end of the table. And so we sat down, and Miles told story after story, which I, I don't want to repeat. Sure. But then uh, after a while, uh, he stopped telling the story, and he looked at me and he said, D you know, well, he had this voice, this gravelly voice, you know, you know what the most valuable lesson I ever learned about music? And I said, I don't know. What, what is that, Miles? And he said, the importance of silence. And Tommy and I, and everything just stopped when he said that. And I didn't understand what it meant, but it connected very deeply to me. It took me like a... <laughs> forever, many decades to understand what he meant. Do you understand it now? I understand it. Now, well, what does yeah. that mean? Can you encapsulate it? Yeah, if you listen to, I mean, especially, you know, the obvious thing is you go get in a silent way. You know, I knew he had made that record, so I knew, you know, and you listen to that record, just as an example. Um, you can hear space, and you can hear miles emerging from the silence. And you can track how his sound emerges from the silence. The other musicians are creating, they're, they're playing a riff over and over again. So it's like a bed, right? But where Miles is, in his frequencies, there's total silence in his space on the record. And then he emerges 
And then you can track the emergence of the sound and then how it decays and how it descends back into the silence. In and out of the silence. You can track miles coming in, weaving in and out of silence. And that's the beauty. That's part of the beauty of his music. And that's an essential thing about life is being uh, sensitive, trying to find the silence. You know, they say in Genesis, God created the world in six days and then the seventh day he rested. God doesn't run out of energy. He's not resting. It's he needed silence or it needed silence. It's a part of existence that's really important, which we don't touch enough. Another interesting point of, you know, about silence, the more you go into it, you know, in music notation, you're a musician, right? You know, in music notation, for the notation of the duration of a sound, there's an equal notation for the duration of silence. Correct. We call it rests, right? Yeah. So if there's a whole note of sound, there's a whole note of silence. You know, it goes up to a 128th note of silence. That's how important, equally important silence is to sound in music. You also write about uh, dissonance being as uh, almost not as important, but a big part of a counterbalance to harmony. Yes. Same idea. Yes. Talk about practice in both disciplines, music and mindfulness. Does practice yield mastery? No. If practice yielded mastery, there'd be a lot more masters around. I would be a master if practice yielded mastery. I, I think practice yields advancement and it yields results. Can practice get you into what people, some people describe as flow, groove, zone? Can practice take you there? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. And how will you know? You'll know. It's, it's you know, I'll know it when I see it. You know, I know it when I hear it. You'll know. You'll feel it. And it's an experience that you'll know it like you know when you walk outside that it's raining. You'll know it the same way. You'll okay. know it with your body and your mind. Music and mindfulness, both. Both. And have you had the, that experience in, 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 in both realms of your life or in one realm of your life? Well, sure. I've had the experience in music a, a lot. Yeah. And all the time. Yeah. And, but in terms of, um, because music is very physical yeah. as, as well as emotional and mental. It's everything. Yeah. It's effortless to get into that with yeah. music. I mean, you could not be a musician and just, you know, I had a, a Lyft driver and he was telling me he meditates to Billy Joel's Piano Man. He just he just puts that on repeat for ever, for hours, yeah. and he'll sit there and just listen to that song. And to him, that's meditating. You know, it's not really meditating. It's a kind of a meditating. It's what works for him. It's what works for him um, to de-stress. To de-stress, and in deep meditation, in terms of getting into mindfulness and all that, you're whole body becomes an organ of awareness that's just the definition of who you are you are awareness it isn't separated between your mind and your body and your feelings it's just there's a saying in in um, sanskrit uh, satchit ananda pure being pure awareness and joy but you reach you can reach that state where you realize you're purely awareness and being that's what you are you write that meditation can free intuition, mm-hmm. um, which I think the context you were you were talking about uh, 
in which you were discussing it is the how an artist can kind of create um and, and especially with music there's an in, intuition that is required how does meditation do that how does it free up intuition oh because you know you have the two hemispheres of your brain and the one hemisphere is the discursive linguistic analytical part and then the other part is more creative and intuitive so if you're quieting down the linguistic discursive part the analytical part it lets the intuition shine through for those that have never meditated before so what i was telling you i was going to get to for those that have never meditated before give them give listeners a workable framework to try it for the first time what would the optimal scenario be you want to give it a try you're listening to this podcast checking out your book what's a workable framework for a novice you know i i like to say that that mindfulness is not a one-size-fits-all solution okay and to always have the caveat that uh we shouldn't be over expecting results and stuff like that um so the one-size-fits-all solution the point there is that i think different people might be attracted to different ways i mean i I hear and I know people that started out with apps and they said that was helpful for them. Headspace. That's one. There's a lot of them out now. And and it seemed to to work for them, to get them started. Um, For me, it's an imperfect, you know, it's it's like training wheels. Uh, It's a good way to start. It might be very good. I can't argue that people are saying that, that it's gotten them into meditation. You can't argue with that. So if it's worked for them, it's beautiful. Um, I would say for music, music-oriented people, if you're having a problem getting into, first of all, you have to set aside a, a consistent time. Ten minutes is what you you write about, right? Ten minutes is a good right. That's what I was told. Starting point. It, you know, they say, you know, somebody says, "Well, I only have five minutes," and you're supposed to say, "Okay, five minutes is good too." Okay. That's fine. If you have two minutes, two minutes, whatever it is. You're going to dedicate the time to it. That's good. It's a good start. It's you're you're building up your capital, step you know penny by penny, like collecting royalties, sure, right? Sure. So you know we don't look down on one minute or two minutes. Um, Ten minutes is nice. Twenty minutes is better. Um, thinking of Billy Joel right now because you mentioned him, and I'm thinking about that lyric. You want to have a hit, you got to cut it down to 305. <laughs> so you got to at least be able to do it for 305. If you're doing the, if you're in the Billy Joel school of meditation. Yeah, well, now people are making records that two minutes long. You know, some of yeah. the, the hip-hop it's records. It's because of the business of streaming now. Uh, yeah. you, get to, you get credit for streams and not albums. Yeah, so listen. Change the landscape. Yeah, I'm happy to make a two-minute song. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, there's no boring repetition in there. Right. Um, what I found helpful, actually, you know, I have two meditation sessions, one in the morning, one at night. And what I found helpful at night, um, and it's especially during very stressful periods, is to put on music, actually, that you find calming, or natural sounds, birds, fountains, the ocean, or something like that, just to calm you down, just to get you focusing in on something else other than your own problems and projects and plans or whatever. And so when you're listening to calming music, it slows everything. It slows down your mental processes and your physical process, right? And you set the timing so that it only goes for, it depends how long you want to sit. Let's say you want to sit for 10 minutes. 
So you say, I'm going to listen to this music or these sounds for five minutes. And then I'm going to sit in silence for five minutes. And I found that to be very effective. Mm. Um, I, I would say 10 minutes of, you know, you can expand that and keep going. 10 minutes of, of listening and then 10 minutes of listening to silence, in silence. And I find, I find that to be very helpful if you're having a problem meditating. Do you meditate every day? Daily? Oh, yeah. And how many years have you been doing that? The consistent practice since 2007. Wow. So it's 13 years. And you, you describe it in the book as well. It's the practice itself becomes part of your routine. It becomes, it becomes the meditation in, in, kind of, in a certain way, like the ritual. Yeah, it's like, you know, do you go to the gym? Yeah. You, you, okay, so it's the same way. You well, know? I would even say more, I would say the way that you do it. I don't go to the gym every day. Right. For you, it's like eating. <laughs> Is yeah. that fair? It's fair. Yeah. Eating or taking a shower, or going to the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah if, if you, brushing it's, your teeth, it's something that you do every day. Yeah, um, it's it's uh, that in and of itself is the flow. Is the is that um, I like the term that you use, um, the no mind state. Don't know mind. Yeah, yeah. That's the classic Korean Zen schools. Don't know mind. Huh. Uh, the idea. I mean, don't know mind says you you don't have these concepts. You know, you realize that there's a new book out, by the way, it's called Bias. And uh, by a sociologist researcher, based on a lot of research, and, and she says that people have fra mental frameworks. They have, you have to. Like you see a dog and you'll, you'll say, okay, dog wagging its tail, not a threat. You know, immediately you'll put whatever is coming across your field of awareness into, you'll label it. And, and you'll judge it. You'll judge it, you'll label it. You know, you, it'll fit into some kind of compartment that you've already got in your brain. So we have these biases. And what Don't Know Mind says is realize that you have all these biases in every aspect of your life and give it up. Let go of them. And realize that you don't know. You don't know what's happening. And if you don't know, then you can learn. If you already know, there's no way you're going to grow and learn. Mm, I love that. And mindfulness and meditation enables your brain to reach, or in theory, with enough practice, enables you to turn off that judgment and turn off that compartmentalization and turn off that labeling and learn. Exactly. And expand. Mindfulness is not only about how you know, but how you don't know. To know that you don't know. And, the, you know, the greatest Western philosopher, besides Yogi Berra, is supposed to be Sophocles, right? Um, Socrates. Mm -hmm. Socrates says, all I know is that I know nothing. It's true. So the, um, I don't know if this came before or after, but the axiom of like, the more you know, the less you know, mm -hmm. right? The more, you, the more you learn, the more, you, more educated you get, the more you realize how little you actually know about how the world works. Right. Wrapping up, have you read anything good recently? I've reread... Uh, a book that I love. It's called Elegant Failure uh, by um, Richard Schrobe, I think his name is. Why'd you reread it? It's full of great Zen stories. I, I love Zen culture. I love the okay. whole culture because they have such a good sense of humor and the ridiculous. It's like the Three Stooges for the mind. And uh, that's why I reread it because I love the stories in there. And he, and he uh, learned from the, the Korean school of Don't Know Mind, actually. 
coincidentally enough that you meant you brought that up. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something I'm, and I'm reading from his teacher, uh, the compass of Zen that book, uh, but elegant failures one, uh, and Alan Watts is the wisdom of insecurity. Okay. Just reread that too. Highly recommend. What music is on heavy rotation for you right now? I go uh, Spotify and I browse. Uh, and I, you do browse. Well, I, I hit the hip hop, you know, okay. and not the first thing, the rap caviar. I don't do that one, but I do the others, a few other ones that are more underground. And that's what I'll do. And then I'll read, um, review it. Like the New York Times has a playlist every Sunday. Yeah. They have a pop playlist. I go through that. Okay. Um, so you're uh, current. You listen to current stuff. Oh, uh, of course. You I'm have writing a, current stuff. Okay. Do you have any um, old favorites, personal favorites? I just had the manager of Kurt Cobain in here where you're sitting. Uh, Danny few, Goldberg. Danny Goldberg. Great. A few weeks ago, he came out with a new book, Remembering yep. Kurt Cobain. Yep. Uh, he was a wildly influential musician in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, I grew up in the 90s. Um, so, like, that, he's my go-to. I just listened to that Unplugged album today while working. Yeah. Do you have a go-to like your your personal favorites? Who are some of you, who are some of your personal favorites, or what are some of your personal favorite albums? Well, um, "To Pimp a Butterfly" by Kendrick Lamar. Okay, one of my favorite. I I love Kendrick Lamar. Amazing. Um, I'm a bit more of a Good Kid, Mad City guy myself. I like that too. It was so raw. I like that too. But you know, he's got some anthems. He's yeah. written some. You know, every all right and yeah etc and plus he talks a lot about well for me it's a lot he tells yeah. you that meditation is a must that don't hurt if you try yeah so you thinking too much plus you're too full of yourself yeah worried about your career what about your health that's kendrick he, he talks uh you know i gotta vibrate to that and j cole has a thing about meditation not medication and um so those are those are on heavy rotation for me i mean you know it there's so many composers from Bach to Kendrick. It goes all the way. I mean, um, I could we could sit there forever. Miles sure. and Coltrane. No, I love, I love the people that have a diverse musical palette are the most interesting people to me because uh, you're not siloed and you're just open to everything. And you can talk about Rachmaninoff in one breath, and then you can talk about J. Cole in another, and Little Yachty, and after that, you know, yeah. and back, and it's cool. You write about it. You have an anecdote in there about Easy E as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's just so many great eras of music. Now that yeah. you're recounting it, I, yeah. I can think of a an 80s classic old, old school hip-hop playlist that I can tap into after we're done today. Yeah. A lot of fun. I mean, Dre, Dr. Dre, brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant producer. I mm-hmm. love his records. Easy e was a, a cool guy. Um, much different than his image, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, I think you describe it in the book as well. He's, uh, that was, some of that was uh, Persona. Some of that was an yeah, alter ego. That's right. He was an entertainer. Yeah, exactly. Um, and entertainers have to take on shapes and molds, you know. And, and like you, to echo what you said a few minutes ago, most people that don't understand it will look at him and label him and judge him. And it's interesting; those people could all benefit from some mindfulness. It sounds like <laughs> a lot of people could have benefited. Um, he was a very shrewd businessman. I mean, he, he was a sweet sweet man and very respectful and, and easy to like very yeah. likable yeah but he was a good he was a very smart businessman and he you have yeah. to be it's not accidental it's, no. uh, it's so hard to break through yeah. um at least I, this is me talking 
to someone who's on the inside, someone from an outsider, a fan, a spectator. I just feel like there's so much out there to actually push through and get to that level. There has to be some level of uh, savvy. Part of the savvy is listening to people that know more than you do. Yeah. And listening to the right people. Yeah. That's part of the savvy. Yeah. And finding people to like Easy E found Jerry Heller, finding people that can fill in the gaps of your knowledge. Yeah. That's why he was smart. You know, he knew he didn't know certain things and he needed help in certain areas and other areas. He was a, a genius. Yeah. The book is In Tune, Music as the Bridge to Mindfulness. Richard, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Book Stories. Book Stories is brought to you by Alternate Thursdays in Los Angeles. Special thanks to Savannah Wright for production assistance. I'm Vic Singh. Thanks for listening.